Welcome to Across the Margin, the podcast. I am your host, Michael Shields. Across the Margin, the podcast is a proud member of the Osiris Media Group. Check out all their offerings at osirispod.com. Today's episode features an interview with award-winning journalist and photographer currently focused on migration, conflict, and humanitarian crises. That's Sally Hayden. Sally's worked with Vice News, CNN International, Time, BBC, The Washington Post, The Guardian, The New York Times, NBC News, Newsweek, and many other outlets, and has had stories and photojournalism published on six continents by outlets, including National Geographic, NPR, The Observer, ABC News, among many others. She was named as one of Forbes's 30 Under 30 in media in Europe in part because of her work on refugee issues. Her book, My Fourth Time We Drowned, Seeking Refuge on the World's Deadliest Migration Route. The focus of this episode, it exposes a human rights disaster of epic proportions. As the story goes, one day, Sally was home in London when she received a message on Facebook that read, Hi, Sister Sally, we need your help. The sender identified himself as an Eritrean refugee who had been held in a Libyan detention center for months, locked in one big hall with hundreds of others. The city around them was crumbling in a conflict between warring factions, and they remained stuck, defenseless, with only one remaining hope, contacting Sally. From this single message begins a staggering account, laid out within my fourth time we drowned, of the migrant crisis across North Africa. With unprecedented access to people currently inside Libyan detention centers, Her book is based on interviews with hundreds of refugees and migrants who tried to reach Europe and found themselves stuck in Libya once the EU started funding interceptions in 2017. My Fourth Time We Drowned is an intimate portrait of life for these detainees, as well as a condemnation of NGOs and the United Nations whose abdication of international standards will echo throughout history. But most importantly, Her groundbreaking work of investigative journalism shines a light on the resilience of humans. How refugees and migrants locked up for years fall in love, support each other through the hardest times, and carry out small acts of resistance in order to survive in a system that wants them to be silent and to disappear. In this episode, Sally and I discuss the compelling story of how a cryptic Facebook message led to the revelation of atrocities taking place in detention camps in Northern Africa. We discussed the true scope of the migrant crisis taking place while expounding upon how the European Union and the United Nations are largely responsible for the ongoing emergency. We discuss in depth the importance of documenting and paying attention to the suffering in the world and a whole lot more. Her book is absolutely crucial and eye-opening and exposes a manufactured migrant crisis where people are suffering as a result of the policies offered as solutions to a non-existent problem, a problem created not by the refugees, but by states that routinely violate international law by preventing black and brown people fleeing poverty and violence from seeking asylum. So here it is, my interview with Sally Hayden. Cross the margin. Cross the margin. Cross the margin. 
podcast. Thank you. Uh, the book was incredible. I mean, it really it, 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 it affected me. I could see it's affecting a lot of people. But the whole thing um, began with you, um, you know, scrolling through Netflix uh, when you received a Facebook message. And um, I think it would be interesting for the listeners to hear, you know, how uh, what that message was and how that led to the creation uh, or you writing writing this book, because it's it's pretty amazing where that took you just that simple message you received yeah sure um so like you said it was august 2018 and i got a facebook message it said hi sister sally we need your help we are under bad condition in libya prison if you have time i will tell you all the story um and of course i didn't know you know where this was coming from why was this person contacting me who they were um you know, what did it mean that they're in prison? Like, how do they have a phone, for example? But, and, and also, I mean, I work as a journalist. I generally tell people straight up, I can't help them because I don't want them to get any, you know, um, you know, any wrong ideas about what I'm capable of doing basically, or what my role is. And so I said, like, I can't help him, but he can tell me uh, more information if he wants to. So basically what emerged quite quickly was that this was a crisis situation, that there were 500 men, women and children who had been locked up in um, what he called prison. It was a migrant detention center and they had effectively been abandoned after months being locked up inside and a war had just broken out around them. This was what he was telling me, um, which I then was able to verify that a conflict had just broken out, that they had been left without food or water, that they didn't even know this city. You know, they had nowhere to go. They had no idea what was happening outside. They could see um, signs of warfare outside them. And so I, I basically tried to verify this. I mean, at the start, I wasn't sure if I took it seriously, but then I contacted a, a Libyan journalist, contact in um. Tripoli and asked you know is it true that there's a war that's just broken out I was in London so I was far away and I hadn't reported in Libya before but I said is there a war that's just broken out he said yes and I said is it possible I told him that uh, the suburb of Tripoli is it possible that there's 500 people locked up in here that are refugees or you know migrants and he said yes there's a migrant detention center there and at that point, I kind of went, oh, wow, OK. Um, and so I started contacting aid agencies, uh, the UN, and again, asking, is this possible? And can these people also have help? Because it was emerging, you know, it was becoming clear quite quickly that they actually were in desperate need of emergency help. Um, and the response that I got from those aid agencies was, yes, uh, again, yes, this is true, or this is likely to be true. Um, they didn't have direct communication with the group, but they knew that there, there was a group that had been locked up there. But they said, there's nothing we can do because we need to look after the safety of our own staff. Mm. Um, so basically what developed from there, I was talking more and more with this group. They were just, you know, again, begging me, please tell the world, you know, get us help, do anything. And what emerged was that they had all been locked up as a direct result of European Union migration policy. Mm -hmm. So they had all actually tried to reach safety in Europe, um, but they were intercepted at sea and basically locked up indefinitely without any legal charge, you know, without any lawyers, without any 
recourse, a way to get out, and that they had been there, like I said, for months. Um, and at this point, I again sat up further because I went, you know, I'm a European. This mm-hmm. has happened in my name. I didn't know anything about this. So, um, so yeah, and the story just developed from there for, for years, basically. I ended up reporting on this for years. What, um, what are the conditions, um, you know, that it started kind of with this uh, Caleb coming from uh, Eritrea is kind of the focus in the beginning, but him and the people who were with him, what, what are the conditions in these, in these uh, uh, camps or prisons or, or whatever? you would call them yeah so what's happening is their detention centers um that's generally what you call them i mean i think camps gives you kind of the wrong impression that maybe it's like a refugee camp that people have a bit more freedom but it's more like a prison like you'll be locked inside a hole some people don't get let out for literally years like they might not see sunlight for years um you might be fed once a day plain pasta maybe plain rice um maybe a piece of bread uh, and and basically it turned out that there was this network so I don't know um, how much listeners will know about Libya but it's in North Africa um, it's it's tended traditionally to be somewhere that people if they're trying to reach Europe they'll they'll gather there basically and try and cross the sea before they go um, to but, the sea, right yeah they come up yeah, but it, North Africa and or East or West Africa and shoot up and Tripoli's kind of like the landing point where they shoot over the Mediterranean Sea ideally to get to or, or along the coast there yeah yep. but um but uh since 2011 there hasn't been a functional government so uh Gaddafi was in power and then Gaddafi was ousted in 2011 and so there's now multiple governments but effectively the country is being run by militias you know it's divided between militias and um, what you have then is these detention centers that are also run by militias. So they may or may not be associated with the UN-backed government, which is the one based in Tripoli. Um, but, you know, they're being run by militias. There isn't proper oversight of them. And um, yeah, then you have refugees just being locked up there, refugees and migrants being locked up there indefinitely. And... Uh, yeah, the, I mean, that's what I began to understand and began to expose that, that like I said, this, you know, in Europe, um, and I think everybody in the US will be aware of this too, we had the so-called European migrant crisis um, around 2015. And then there was basically a lot of efforts made to try and stop people from arriving on Europe's shores anymore. And at this point, people think maybe the migrant crisis has gone away, obviously, apart from what's happening in Ukraine. But actually, what has happened is the the borders have kind of been solidified. A lot of efforts have been made to make sure that people aren't actually reaching European territory where they could then claim asylum or claim a legal right to stay there. Um, So, yeah, this is this is part of that structure. Let me um, kind of take a step back and just. Uh, ask about the scope of it because I mean when you you laid out the timeline of events kind of when it comes to these this migration really uh, deliberately in your book and one thing that really blew my mind is the actual uh, loss of life in the Mediterranean Sea the 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 numbers um, I mean is that true it's I mean it's over 20,000 people have lost their lives trying to get across on 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 boats since uh, 2014 is that the scope of things yeah, I mean, and I think it's worth saying that's believed to be an underestimate. Yes, like it's yes. actually, it's very hard to get these exact figures, you know, so they're quite conservative in terms of 
um, the numbers. And so, yeah, the numbers are huge. But then, you know, that actually also only shows you a small part of the story because a lot of people are dying before they reach the Mediterranean. So, again, that was something that I hadn't fully realized before I started um, being in contact with people in Libya. And the Mediterranean is actually just a final part. It's your final chance to actually escape what can be a years long ordeal of trying to seek safety and instead facing torture and exploitation and, you know, huge abuses and um, death everywhere. So yeah, those, those numbers, they really don't tell the full story. Yeah. And even, even them uh, just with that number, it's pretty, pretty intense. Yeah. So you just alluded to it. There's, a lot before these detention centers where they, you know, travel through, I mean, people have been on the road for, for, you know, upwards of a year or more on the way to Libya to that jumping off point, which is really wild. I, I heard you in an interview talking about one of Caleb's stories about, um, I think it was uh, smugglers. He was kind of uh, being traded in like a gambling ring or anything. Just, I mean, just their journey to that point is heroin. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Basically, you have, like I said, Libya is kind of a collection point for people coming from across Africa. So you have a big mix of people who have fled, you know, dictatorships like in Eritrea or in Sudan or war in Somalia or South Sudan or Ethiopia. Um, and then you have people from West Africa who would be more considered as economic migrants, but they tend to be, you know, fleeing in search of healthcare or you know, better lives, ways oh, wow. to ways to save people back home, you know, but but more financial. Um, and they all come together in Libya, but the routes are slightly different, but also still the same. Basically, the more that the borders get securitized, the more scope there is for people to exploit people who are trying to make that type of journey. And so what has developed in Libya uh, is what's kind of known as a go now pay later scheme mm. and so if you are in for example Sudan which um, I've reported from Sudan it's a place that's not safe for refugees like they are regularly exploited by the security forces you know they're at risk of being deported mm. and they face a lot of different challenges so it can be very expensive to stay still in a country like Sudan. So what happens is a smuggler then will say, well, if you want to go to Libya, you don't have to pay anything until you actually make it there. Um, so you pay nothing up front and you get taken to Libya. You might get promised, you know, you'll pay $2,000 and you'll be across the sea in four weeks. And then you get to Libya and you are locked up in a warehouse and basically brought um, from from that point, you're told, you know, actually, you thought it was two thousand dollars, but you have to pay five thousand dollars or even more. And every day you're brought to call your family. Um, you're given potentially like one minute on the phone to them and told, you know, tell them they have to raise this money. They have this amount of time. And after I mean, it depends on the smuggler, but after a certain amount of time, maybe one month, maybe three months, you'll start to be tortured. Um, if you haven't managed to raise that money and some people do die at that point some people do manage to raise the money and what happens with people like Caleb who um, whose story I tell in the book he mm -hmm. actually was raised the, the first amount of money his family members managed to and then he was sold or gambled away in his case to another smuggler and then has to raise that money again so 
you can end up just being sold between smugglers. And strangely, this has also been a result of European policy that's exacerbated that because uh, because it's become so much harder to get across the sea. The smugglers are trying to capitalize on making more and more money with keeping the people in their custody, you know, under captivity, basically. And so, yeah, that ordeal can last years. And in some cases, people do die in that in that um, part of it. They don't actually end up making it to the sea at all. So the sea is really a release. You're lucky if you manage to make it out on the sea. Let's talk about what you were just kind of alluding to the, uh, you know, it's it's legal to to go somewhere and seek refuge, but it's it's there are policies being set forth by the European Union, um, and and they're spending a lot of money to to do this. I mean, they're the situation that that we're talking about in these detention centers is 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 caused, as you point out so so vividly in your book, by the European Union. Can you talk some about how they're responsible for for this situation? Yeah, sure. Um, so what has happened since around 2015? 2015 is when we had the so-called European migration crisis, mm-hmm. and we had kind of the rise of a lot of far-right politicians, you know, far-right parties and politicians that were using that to kind of gain ground um, politically. And what the response to that was among European politicians, you know, who were more left-wing or more center was to crack down on migration as an effort to try and, you know, maintain control or try and stop this rise of the far right, basically. Um, And one of the efforts that was made was in 2015, it was called the uh, the EU Trust Fund for Africa. So it's a multi-billion pot of money. Um, of euros that is being spent, I think, still across 26 African countries, and they're effectively deemed to be in crisis. So there's not proper oversight of that Mm -hmm. spending like there would be in other situations. And it is, I mean, being spent in many different ways, but effectively to try and stop migration. And so that money um, is, you know, under that is the Libyan Coast Guard funding, which came about two years later. And a lot of this, I mean, when you think about it, you have to think about like workarounds and legal loopholes and things mm-hmm. like this, because it is illegal uh, for a European vessel to return somebody to Libya because their life is in danger there. So that is not allowed under international law. Also no. under international law, you can't be punished. So if you make it to a country where you can then claim asylum mm-hmm. And an international right to protection, you can't be punished for how you entered that country. So the kind of sad irony of um, of you know asylum refugee law is that like a lot of these people, if they can get on that territory, they will have a legal right to stay there. But mm-hmm. it's the problem of getting onto that territory in the first place. That's where they're being locked out. And so, uh, so what happened was the EU and Eastern Mediterranean. Sorry, and this might be a lot of information. Please, no, it's. In the Eastern Mediterranean, they did a deal with Turkey to effectively try and stop arrivals from Syria and other countries in the Middle East. Um, But in with Libya, because Libya is effectively a failed state, you know, it's not a functional state. It's a bit more difficult and it's, um, you know, a lot more problematic as well. And so what has been happening is the Libyan Coast Guard are now being supported to intercept boats. And it isn't that the EU isn't involved in this. I mean, the EU is running surveillance. So they're flying drones, helicopters, Mm -hmm. airplanes to spot refugee boats and then passing that information on so that then 
Yeah, so that then the the refugees can be intercepted. So since 2017, more than 90,000 men, women and children have been caught at sea like this and forced back to Libya and generally put in indefinite detention. Um, That's really, truly gaming the system. Yeah, I saw the numbers for 44.5 million to Libya just last year for that for these, these type of things, which is crazy. But also too, not only, you know, the EU being culpable um, for what you just discussed, which is really mind blowing. Uh, it's generally considered that the UN is a positive force in uh, maintaining kind of, um, you know, a moral world order, you know, something that I think many people think, but I mean, there's many examples in your book about, you know, uh, their errors and their culpability too. And, and, you know, I'd love to hear you talk some about, you know, how they have failed in this, in this as well. Yeah. I mean, I think I should say like a lot of my reporting on the UN comes from UN employees. I mean, I have a lot of sources among UN employees who are quite uncomfortable about how they're being used, particularly in Libya um, Uh and around migration. And I personally started reporting on the UN Refugee Agency. So that's the agency mandated to uh, protect the rights of refugees. I started reporting on them in 2017, which is when I went to Sudan. So Sudan neighbors Libya, and it's kind of one of the countries that's on the way to Libya if people Mm -hmm. are trying to take this route to Europe. Um, And when I went there, I met a lot of refugees, particularly Eritreans and Ethiopians, who were saying that uh, UNHCR in Sudan, that staff basically um, were demanding bribes, like massive bribes for a refugee resettlement. So I'm sure a lot of people know about refugee resettlement. There's like a small number of, uh, you know, it's the so-called legal route to safety. So a small number of spaces are offered for refugees to be taken to a safe country in the West generally. And that generally is done through UNHCR. And in Sudan, um, refugees alleged that the process had been corrupted, basically, that they were being asked to pay bribes, that it wasn't a fair process, that Mm -hmm. they were being demanded up to $20,000, I think, for a family to be taken through this route. And I published that investigation in May 2018, And um, it included an interview with a former staff member who said also that this was happening. And two days later, they suspended the whole resettlement program in Sudan and later then found one staff member guilty of soliciting bribes and abusing power. Um, But as a basically as a you know, that that was my first kind of challenging my preconception in terms of how the UN is playing a role in in terms of refugee policy and um, how we understand or what we understand about the treatment of refugees. And and I spoke to UN investigators, uh, one who had uncovered a similar scheme in Kenya um, a few decades ago, and he said the problem is supply and demand. You know, when you have huge demand and tiny supply, there's always kind of space for corruption or exploitation that's just always going to be a risk and so that's you know that that that's the biggest problem really isn't it that there aren't enough of these spaces um but then when I started reporting on Libya I started getting contacted again by UN staff who were uncomfortable and basically they were saying um and I noticed this too when you in when you ask European politicians or European spokespeople about 
these policies. So basically, aren't they responsible for, you know, perpetrating crimes against humanity by supporting these interceptions and having tens of thousands of people locked up indefinitely in detention? Monitoring those those detention centers as well. Yeah. And what they will say is they don't support the detention centers Mm -hmm. being open. They want them closed and they are in the meantime trying to improve the conditions by funding the UN. Mm -hmm. So basically then what what that was kind of being used as an excuse, basically, Mm -hmm. or like kind of a, you know, slightly whitewashing. And then what the UN staff were saying to me is they were very uncomfortable that that they felt they were being used to whitewash this situation Mm -hmm. because they were. Be, they were receiving this EU money. They couldn't publicly speak against the EU specifically. And then, you know, they had very limited access. This is people speaking off the record generally um, or, you know, anonymously. They had very limited access to the detention centers. But then whenever they released a statement saying they had visited, for example, that could be used as showing that things were OK there. Legitimizing, um, yeah. Yeah, legitimizing it, exactly. And that's what I... I mean, I tried to document that um, in terms of just how, because I had direct communication with detainees inside the centers. So my information wasn't coming from the management, you know, and it wasn't mm-hmm. just coming from the UN. I could then I could then compare what was being said by the people in power who were being funded by the EU versus what was being said by the people who were locked up in these places. Did that put you in a precarious situation? Um, there was a moment, I think, in your book where you mentioned that your life was threatened in North Africa, I think you're kind of persona non grana in uh, Libya, but did this type of reporting put you in a, I mean, your life at risk in certain situations? Yeah, I mean, it's always a bit hard to like say exactly what what the level of danger was or how um, definite that threat was. But yeah, I mean, I say it in the book. So within months, I started reporting on this like you said, I got the first message. Then my phone, my contact details got passed around a lot of detention centers. And at the same stage, I had started posting a lot of these messages on Twitter. So I started a Twitter thread that was getting eventually millions of views. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I had kind of come out of nowhere, to be honest, because like I said, I had reported on migration before, but not specifically on Libya. And suddenly, I was being contacted by everybody because my reporting, I think also because I posted about my shock on Twitter. I mean, I'm a journalist. I was just, you know, sharing I was information. Yeah, time. sharing information, yeah. but the information was very shocking. Um, and I think that attracted a lot of attention. And so quite quickly, I started getting kind of strange messages, you know, that were threatening. Um, and I didn't know whether to take those very seriously. But then I did later receive a security warning um, from two government agencies, which were about um, a potential risk to my life. And that one I did take very seriously. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, I mean, and I don't know, I can't, I don't know what the, who was behind those, you know, but, but it really underlined to me, like the importance of this, yeah. you know, of reporting on this. And at the same stage, I, I would be wrong to say that it didn't make me very afraid. You know, it did have a chilling effect on me at the same time, because you don't even know who's behind that. You know, you don't know who you can tell where you are at any particular yeah. time or, um, you know, I became even afraid to say like which city I was in at the time, because I didn't know who was there. Were my messages to people being intercepted or was one of my sources sharing information that might put me at risk. So 
um, it, it becomes tricky. Yeah, um, kind of on that note, um, you allude to it a couple of times and your focus is obviously on the, the struggles of, of the people that are focused on the book. But I mean, it, it, it was challenging to write this book and face these atrocities, wasn't it? I mean, there's one point you mentioned how you procrastinated too much writing the book because it was upsetting to reflect on things. It's, 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 I thought it was so important to just kind of aside in your author's note, which was deeply affecting that that was, that was real honest in there, but it kind of felt like a call to not look away, not become immune to these things. And that, that is so important, but it's hard. And so it was, it was hard at times, I'm sure reflecting over some of this, the, this information that you were presenting. Yeah, and I'm grateful to everybody who reads it. And I think it's important to say, like, this isn't just a story about Europe and Africa. This is mm -hmm. actually a much broader issue about mm -hmm. how the rich world is treating people who need safety and, and you know, about global inequality and about um, the effects of the securitization of our borders, which I know is happening in the US as well, in Australia and lots of different places. Um, and for me... I mean, I also had to contend with my own privilege because, of mm. course, I'm like a white European, you know, I can travel very easily. Some of my sources I was in touch with for years and they were locked in one room the entire time that I was traveling around the world for this book, you know, and that's very, uh, you know, it's terrible. Yeah. And uh, yeah, I don't know. I, th I think the other thing that I would say is that I know that people are a bit tired of reading about, you know, migration related issues, refugees, like people you think, especially because we use this word migrants. And I think it just it has this dehumanizing effect that means that people just stop paying attention. And uh, like you said, this information was very hard one. And I didn't even realize till I started reporting it, the pressure that I would come under in terms of death threats, in terms of a year long legal investigation against me as well. Um, and I would kind of appeal to people to please not turn away, like to realize that. And, and that's for me, you know, of course, my sources were in much greater danger. They were the ones who were really risking everything um, and their bravery, you know, astounds me. And yeah, from that perspective, I would ask that people do try give it a chance because I know I'm, <laughs> I'm having like all the, you know, people saying, well, if it was a bit more positive, maybe people, more people would read it or, yeah. you know, um, yeah. Well, that wasn't the point. It seems you really want to document what was happening, what was going on. And yeah, no, you mentioned some of the people that you were talking to about uh, publishing the book, kind of what their aims were. And it was pretty, pretty ridiculous. Some of the, the ideas they had there. I'm, I'm so curious though, following, and this is kind of a current question, following your reporting, uh, everything you put out in the world and other reporting on this, have there been any changes or has the, you know, the EU or the UN, have they been culpable for anything that they've been doing? Have any of their practices changed at all? So this is not um, related to my reporting directly, but actually okay. two or three weeks ago, the head of the EU border agency resigned. And mm -hmm. that is as a result of allegations that... Oh, wow. um, Sorry? I said, yeah. wow, I didn't know that. Yeah, sorry. Yeah, yeah, uh, that's a result of allegations that um, the agency is involved in the human rights abuses, basically. And we have also had uh, developments like a UN fact-finding mission came out in um, 
last October and said that there is evidence that crimes against humanity and war crimes are being perpetrated against migrants. And they said against migrants as a group, which actually is quite interesting because under international law, you need to define kind of a group that is being persecuted or that is being um, that is suffering and I mean, I go into this in the book in terms of legal challenges. One of the arguments that's now being made is that even though migrants, you know, as a term, it's it's so broad and it it can, yeah. you know, it's not a particular ethnicity or something like this. Actually, the way that the word migrants is being used, it is being used to demonize a certain type of Blur. group of people. And now the fact that maybe that can progress in terms of that being a you know, an, an international war crime or an international crime against humanity in terms of how you treat them. I mean, that will be a, a significant development, I think. The problem with legal, you know, legal challenges is that they take a long time. And that's what I've really been learning. And in the meantime, we've seen rich states that just keep finding different loopholes. Mm. But from my perspective, I think it's very important that we have um, evidence that we make sure that this evidence is documented and that you know, the first step to moving anything forward is just having that information available. And I also honestly think that, I mean, lots of people say to me, well, the general, you know, the the public of the rich world just don't care. But I don't necessarily know that that's true. If people actually understand what is being done in their name, I do have a belief that they would not not be supportive of that. Um, but I think that systems are being set up so that we don't hear these voices anymore. We don't see this evidence. The other thing, sorry to say last one is that I think it was also two weeks ago, Mm -hmm. the prosecutor of the international criminal court also came out and said, um, that there's evidence that crimes against humanity and war crimes are being committed against, uh, refugees and migrants in Libya. Mm -hmm. And so that again was another development. I think that was to the security council. Um, and so these things sound small, but when you've been kind of like shouting at, yeah. at the world to get Boy. them to recognize this type of abuse, actually, each one of those is a kind of achievement. But at yeah. the same stage, it doesn't necessarily have that much, um, that many implications for people on the ground. Um, just Caleb was such a central figure. There's so many uh, personal stories in here, which is so affecting and, and, and really intense. But what... Um, towards the end of the book you know you do finally get to meet caleb he was the person from the facebook message uh, that from eritrea that ended up in the detention center how was it um meeting him and and just kind of put a bow on it how how was caleb yeah i mean that was amazing Mm -hmm. uh it's very strange feeling to be in communication with someone i think i was in touch with him for a year or so when i finally met him in person um, and it's very strange when you've had this kind of, you know, you've spoken to somebody at the worst moments in their life and there were like, it sounds weird that I would be the person who people were like refugees who were in detention were going to to tell about these things. But actually, it makes sense in a way because they weren't trusting anyone around them. Um, you know, safety wise, you can't give that much information to people around you. You don't want your family to know what you're going through. So actually they wouldn't tell friends and family the real situation they were in because they didn't want them to be upset or to be worried. And so I was kind of like a neutral voice that they could just sound off us really. And uh, he was, he was the first person that I met, but since I've met many, many others who were sources in Libya who are now across Europe. Um, And yeah, it was pretty amazing. And I also met his family, which was partially why 
um, we put his story or why mm. I, I run his story through because I actually ended up meeting his mom um, and the rest of his family. And that was very amazing as well. They're in Ethiopia. Uh, wow. That's, 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 that's good. That's incredible. I love the fact that you're able to connect, but uh, it was wild and, and beautiful that um, he said, and just, it's a credit to what you've done. I'd want to give, give you a compliment and credit, but he'd said, you know, the, 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 when you guys did connect that first day was when we started our fight and when we got hope and you gave them hope and which is just so beautiful. And I did I just, but I mean, I, I, I came to tears multiple times in this book, it, the, but the documentation is so important. Um, I, it's, it's, I'm glad to be able to talk about it with you and learn more. And I, I to spread the word some, cause there's things I had no idea so much of this was going on. I think a lot of people don't. So it's crucial and important what you've been doing. And I really appreciate you taking the time to talk about it with me. So thank you. Yeah, thank you so much. And I, and I think just to emphasize what you're saying, sorry. Um, I mean, I did write this book. I didn't want it just to be a list of kind of human rights abuses. Yeah, yeah. You know, I, I tried to write it so that you get really get a sense of some people like, like there's, you know, love stories, there's acts of Humanized. heroism. Humanized there's, there's also, yeah, and there's also, I mean, Faustian bargains. There's people mm -hmm. who don't necessarily do things that are um, commendable. But I thought that, you know, a lot of the coverage that we see now and a lot of even these systems are being set up to dehumanize people like i said and and the a good thing that we should try to do anyway is just to make it clear that everybody's a human you know it's not not having um you know no i didn't want to oversimplify it i just wanted to show how how life continues for people but also what is happening so definitely yeah i mentioned the numbers earlier and how astounding they are but every single one of those numbers is a person and they're just going through and they're just the unimaginable sacrifices they're taking just to try to get a better life or, or to find safety is just unbelievable it's crazy so hey sally thank you i really appreciate it uh your book's wonderful and i appreciate uh, talking to you about it thanks yeah thank you so much as well thank you for the interest This podcast is in the loop, the Legion of Osiris podcasts. Osiris is creating a community that connects people like you with live experiences and podcasts about artists and topics you love. Get in the loop at osirispod.com.